Please turn with me to the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 10 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Hosea 10 is where we're going to turn. I'm going to read that chapter of Scripture, the 15 verses that are there for us as we begin. We are, as is our custom, moving carefully and systematically through books of the Bible. We're in the book of Hosea now. Just in case you're wondering, Lord willing, anticipate finishing Hosea uh, July in the middle of July. Uh, after Labor Day, we're going to begin the book of Second Thessalonians. Uh, in between that, we have some other things uh, planned, but uh, we're still in Hosea chapter 10, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Your translation might say pillars there. Uh, tall, almost like totem poles they would be uh, for religious worship. Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Then they will say, we have no king because we do not revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what would he do for us? They make many promises, take false oaths, and make agreements. Therefore, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. The people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth-Avon. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests, those who had rejoiced over its splendor because it is taken from them into exile. It will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its foreign alliances. Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us into the hills, fall on us. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. Will not war again overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bounds for their double sin. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, so I will put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim. Judah must plow, and Jacob must break up the ground. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception. Because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors, the roar of battle will rise against your people so that all your fortresses will be devastated. As Shaman devastated Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to the ground with their children. I don't know anything about those battles, those cities. I'm not sure what he's talking about there, except that it was bad. Mothers were dashed to the ground with their children. Verse 15, so it will happen to you, Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. Uh, Because today is a graduation Sunday, I want to address specifically our graduates, both of them. (laughs) Uh, The rest of you can pay attention if you want to. Uh, This is, though, for them. And the title of this talk that I want to give this morning is How to Ruin Your Life. 
how to ruin your life in four easy steps. Uh, now, if you've been here for a while through our study of the book of, he, of Hosea, it should not surprise you at all that I would suggest that Hosea 10 would be about how to ruin your life. This whole book is about a nation that ruined itself. Is there a nation in the world, that in history, that has fallen so far? These people who are God's special treasured possession, now wanders, the last uh, chapter 9 says, wanders among the nations. I read an article online this week about Elizabeth Holmes. Do you know the name Elizabeth Holmes? Uh, Elizabeth Holmes has been getting some press recently, or she had been in the last several months, uh, because uh, she is a tech startup executive, and she's the shining example of this tech startup executive. Her company, Theranos, is a blood testing company, and they use cutting-edge technology to test blood. Uh, and at one point in time uh, last year, Fortune magazine estimated Theranos at a, a company worth $9 billion. And because Elizabeth Holmes owns 50% of the company, her personal worth was there for $4.5 billion. Well, except earlier this year, uh, the government and uh, news reports started coming out uh, that Theranos' blood tests were f- being falsified. They were inaccurate. They were untrustworthy. And right now, Theranos is being sued by several government agencies and investigated by insurance companies. It's just a mess. And because of that, the, the uh, worth of this company has plummeted. In fact, Fortune magazine that later this month is going to put out an issue where argues, that argues that Holmes' now new value is zero. That's, that's a big change. $4.5 billion to zero. She's ruined. If this article is right, then I have more money than she does. It's a nation that is in ruin. You, you, you saw that in the text, doubtless as I read. Uh, let's, let's look at the ruin that's in the text for, for just a minute here. Verse 2 says, the Lord will demolish their altars. Your translation might say break. Uh, that word that's, that's translated break there is the same word used most often in the Bible to describe the breaking of an animal's neck. This is over, completely over. It's dead. The Lord is going to do this. Uh, Verse 5 and verse 6 are about exile. Actually, look at the end of verse 5. It is taken from them into exile. It will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its foreign alliances. A nation in ruin, ashamed, taken into exile. Verse 7 is about the king. Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. That twig might float, but it has no power or no ability to control its destiny at all. That's what a twig on the waters is. It goes exactly where the current takes it, and it is bounced around by anything else that's in the water. It has no control at all, this king. No control. Verse (laughs) 8 makes a reference to thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. That's a place, uh, these are two words in the Bible that are only used together, one other place, thorns and thistles. They're only used together in Genesis 3 when God is talking about the curse that's falling on the land because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve will try to get fruit out of the ground, they'll try to get vegetables to grow, but instead thorns and thistles will come. This is a judgment that is of Genesis 3 cataclysmic nature uh let's see verses verse 10 when i please i will punish them 
Verse 14, we read that just a minute ago. The roar of battle will rise against them. All your fortresses will be devastated. Mothers are going to be dashed to the ground with the children. Your wickedness is great. Verse 15, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. This is a passage about ruin. It's about devastating ruin. Add this to your list. (laughs) Add this to your list of the ways that Hosea wants to uncover the horror of what the people have done in rebellion against God. Hosea goes to great lengths. He uses every device he possibly can. He uses uh, parables and metaphors and sermons and poetry. He does everything he can to show the people how horrible it is that they have rebelled against God. Now, why does he do that? (laughs) Because unless you know the full extent of our problem as rebellious human beings before God, you will never truly appreciate the solution that God provides. So there's pictures and images all over this book of how terrible, how horrible our rebellion against God is. That's the what. The ruin is the what here of this passage. What I'm concerned about, though, is the how. How did these people come to this point of destruction, of exile, of death like this? I have a list I want to give you, but which is one more thing before, before I get to the list. Let me orient you to the text. Remember that Hosea divides into sections. The first three chapters, we talked about this, are Hosea's personal story. Hosea knows what it's like to have an unfaithful spouse, and he writes about that in the first three chapters of his book. And then in chapters 4 through 7 of Hosea, Hosea kind of... Uh, um, Oh, there's got to be a better word for this, but he riffs off, I'm going to use that word, it's a musical word, he riffs off the names of his children and, and uses those names to, to condemn Israel, to show how fallen they are. And then in chapters 8 through 14, we have alternating soliloquies between God and Hosea. Hosea speaks in verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, and then God speaks in verse 9. Do you see the I? Especially you can see that in... Verse 10, when I please, I will punish them. Alternating soliloquies. Again, Hosea and God both know what it's like to have an, an unfaithful spouse. And they, they alternate speaking. Now, specifically to chapter 10, there's a lot of images in this text, aren't there? Hosea was a very metaphorical thinker, it would appear. And in verses 1 through 4, he talks about Israel being a, div- a vine. And he shows us the destruction of the rebellion against God. It's just destructive. In verses 5 through 8, he talks about this calf idol. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Their devotion to the the foreign gods. They're so devoted to them. And then in verses 9 through 15, he talks about their dependence on kings and armies. That's just an overview of the text. Let's talk about how to ruin your life, though. I'm sure it's advice that everybody's interested in. Here we go. Number one. Use your gifts and skills to satisfy yourself. Use your gifts and skills to satisfy yourself. That is, use all of the benefits that God has brought to you, your education, all the attainments, all the skills, the energy of your youth to serve your purposes, not God's purposes and certainly not anyone else's purposes. Now in verse 1 of the text here, we see this image of this vine, this spreading vine. That would be familiar to the Israelites. Any Israelite who would be reading this would know this. Last week we saw, remember how we talked how, about how God said he, he found Israel to be like a grapevine in the wilderness. <laughs> he was a source of great delight to them. Here he continues this image. They're like a spreading vine. Um, normally that would be a source of great joy, of great pride, wouldn't it? Uh, in just a couple months... 
mm, I don't want to rush the summer by, at the end of September, I'll say that, the end of September, it'll be time for the Lampeter Fair. And farmers from around the area will bring their produce to the Lampeter Fair and they'll be very proud of what they have grown or what they've done, their, their giant pumpkins or their green peppers that are all exactly the same size or, or their uh, kernels of corn that look so good together, all of them. And, and, and God says, Israel's like that. He's my, my vine of great delight. Except there's a problem here. What did this vine that looked so good, what did it actually produce? It's a lying plant. Adds nothing for you. No fruit sweet to the taste. No, groups, no grapes colorful to the eyes. The only fruit, the text says, for himself. Verse 1, he brought forth fruit for himself. Nothing for you. What would it be like if you had planted a tomato plant and... Uh, uh, you, you saw some de- delicious red tomatoes on there and you went out to get some. You, you Just as you were about to reach and pick one of those tomatoes, the plant turned on you. Can't have it. With its leaves, it smacked you away from you. <laughs> That's actually what's happening here. Actually, there's, the way that this is a tricky passage, the whole of chapter 10 is it's difficult to translate. If your translation is is different than this. Know that, that people have, experts in Hebrew have poured over this and have struggled to, to get this into coherent English. It's difficult. My translation seems to indicate that the vine was wealthy. There, there was a lot of produce and that they used their money not to worship God, but to build altars to false gods for themselves. That's, that's what my translation seems to indicate. What might be more going on here is that the vine is spreading and the fruit is actually, the altars are the fruit. That this is what this vine produces is these altars and this, this false worship. What would you do with a vine or a plant that only produces thorns? What would you do with it? Can you imagine it's prom season? Well, prom season's over, but can you imagine a young man, he comes to his date prom night and he gives her a stalk with thorns on it. That's it. She says, what is this? He says, it's a rose. It's just for you. She says, there's no flower. Well, I know, but it's, it's a rose. Just wear it. I don't even need to pin it on. It'll just stick right to you. <laughs> this is a description of self-centered, self-focused people. You can see that real clear in verse 3. Verse 3 introduces, inserts the word because in there, or for, your translation might say. I think he's just making three affirmative statements. This is what the people say. What are they saying? We have no king. We don't fear God. And besides, even if we had a king, we don't need a king. What could he do for us? We don't need no stinking king, is what they're saying in Israel at this point in time. Um, it's all about what we want to accomplish. We don't need God. We don't need a king. We're all on our own. Judges. Reminds me of the book of Judges, doesn't it? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What made that this worse is they kept making promises to God, but they wouldn't fulfill them. It's a heart problem. Their heart is deceitful, verse 2. All the blessings that they had as God's people, all the, the wonderful things that had come to them, they prospered and they prospered, but what they produced was just loathsome, vile. 
We find here a warning, I think, about the nature of success. In the providence of God, should you find that your education brings you greater wealth, greater independence, greater acclaim, affirmation, promotion, beware, be very aware of the temptation to use those things to magnify yourself. This is the promise of education. This is what every college recruiter in the whole universe says. If you come to our school, you'll get a job, and when you graduate, you'll be able to go make a lot of money. You'll be able to do something important. You'll be able to be somebody. When your parents aren't thinking clearly, that's what they think about for you too. They think, I hope, I hope when he graduates, when she graduates, they get a good job, and I hope they have enough to meet all of their, not just their needs, but their wants too. Your parents are thinking that for you because they hope that when you hit it big, they can move in with you. That's what they're hoping. But why would you want your children to be rich? Remember what Jesus said? It is hard for a rich person to enter heaven. Why would you wish that on them? Why would you wish upon yourself that you would have money? Because Jesus said that uh, the, the deceitfulness of riches can choke out Uh, uh, what might appear to be early signs of fidelity to Christ. Success can blind you to your true condition before God. If the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, then we actually see it here in this passage. Justice, like poisonous weeds, are coming up in a plowed field. What do you have? Paul asked the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You haven't graduated so that you can fulfill all of your desires or find your purpose in life or even just something so mundane as getting a job. Your graduation is an affirmation and recognition that you've got a few more skills and a little bit more knowledge so that you can more effectively serve other people. Maybe here's a good analogy that that might help. Uh, My kids and I were out riding our bikes this week and we stopped at Turkey Hill in the afternoon to get slushies. And we were drinking our slushies. We were sitting in the parking lot. And I noticed, this was about 4 o'clock, maybe 3.30 on an on a, uh, afternoon, all these trucks coming into the parking lot of, of Turkey. They were all um, uh, contractors of, of some kind. Uh, a pool service company, an HVAC company, electrician, one identified, unidentified work truck, big pickups with big cabs on the back and loaded with all kinds of tools, They stopped for gas, they stopped for slushies of their own, but they went to somebody else's house where they fixed something. Your diploma is public acknowledgement that your toolbox is now officially a little bit bigger. Your diploma will open a few more doors, your toolbox is a little bit bigger, you have a bit more skill, now the expectation is that you're supposed to put it to work. Not cooling your own house, not building your own pool, not building your own kingdom using it to serve other people. Now here's a second way to ruin your life. Here's a second way you can ruin your life. Devote yourself to lesser gods. Devote yourself to lesser gods. You knew that idolatry would be part of this chapter somehow. It's in every book. It's the whole problem in the book of Hosea. The central image is adultery. The central problem is spiritual adultery. There's not a chapter that doesn't pass with idolatry in it somewhere. 
This nation was commanded to worship God alone, and they turned from him repeatedly. And in this chapter, in chapter 10, there's two idols. There's the calf idol in verse 5. We've talked about they worship calves and calf idols a lot. And then, in an idolatrous way, in verse 13, they turned to their warriors, their warrior kings, their military might. Verse 13, it says, Because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. You see how double-minded these people are? They're double-minded. In verse 3, they say, we don't need no stinking king. And in verse 13, they say, oh, we're trusting in our kings. Well, which is it? They're unstable. Their universe is not controlled by the central gravity of the sun, of the righteousness of God, and their world, their universe is unstable. One of the lessons of the book of Hosea, just I suppose is a little bit of a side here, one of the lessons of the book of Hosea is that sincerity is not an adequate measure of what you believe. You've heard this before. You've heard this in our culture. And actually, the first time, from what I understand, that it was popularly produced in print was in a Peanuts cartoon. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it, as long as you believe it wholeheartedly, as long as it reflects the real you. Now, what's attractive about that sentence, doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, is that it means you never have to contradict someone else. You never have to tell someone else that they're wrong. These Israelites were very, very sincere in their worship of the calf idol, but God condemned them for their worship in blistering terms. It is not true. It is a lie that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Now, here's the warning about devotion to lesser gods. This is in this text. We struggle, don't we? We struggle to put this in contemporary language. We don't have stone statues around that we go and worship. And in our culture, in our church culture, we're more inclined to talk about uh, 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 sin in the terms of rebellion against God in terms of rule breaking, breaking God's rules. Uh, as if God is uh, a heavenly college dean who doesn't want you walking on the grass or leaving your trash in the hall. But idolatry, when we come to idolatry, we're not just talking about rule-breaking. It's not just about rule-breaking, but idolatry is about your devotion, what you love, what you treasure. Idolatry is also about your expectations, what you hope for, what you hope will satisfy you. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. I'll read that again. It's it's worth it. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Devotion, expectations. Or maybe you can talk about uh, idolatry in terms of fear. Daniel Taylor wrote this. When I was a child, I was, like most children, afraid of things that go bump in the night. By the time I was a teenager, I wasn't afraid of what might live under my bed, but I was afraid of what my friends might have to say about the way I combed my hair. (laughs) You should get over that fear. Trust me. (laughs) But notice how his fear changed. His, His changing fear is a reflection of his changing idolatries. We are exposed, we're exposed over and over again to a consistent and constant temptation to serve people or things or values that you think will satisfy you supremely. 
And, and what's so good, what's so troubling is that we are very good at turning God's good gifts into ultimate things. If your education continues, you should be aware of what happens on a college campus. It happens in universities. It happens, I think, maybe especially in seminaries. The idol often worshipped there is educational attainment, being published, being consulted, being quoted. And anybody who doesn't have the same level of education you have is a less valuable person, probably less significant than you are. Educational achievement, it's an idol on college campuses. Now it is worth asking, it is worth asking, why is God so particular about this? Every chapter, okay, we get the idea. Why is he so strict in demanding allegiance alone? This is not an ego problem. If you're thinking that, this is not an ego problem. God doesn't have an ego problem. You were made to treasure God supremely more than anyone or anything else, and to do otherwise is not only a massive insult to God, that is part of it for sure, that is probably the larger part of it, but it it also puts yourself in perilous danger. I learned to drive a car in the era before cell phones. There were no cell phones when I learned how to drive a car. And those of you under 20 can go, Uh, none of my classmates, while they were learning to drive, ever texted on their phones. It was great. None of them were ever tempted when they were 16 years old to answer the phone because you couldn't do it unless you were talking on a phone that was attached to a cord in your living room. You hear warnings, though, all the time about distracted driving, don't you? People die because they're texting while driving. I don't want to make light of this weighty subject here, but idol worship is distracted living. It's not paying attention to the central task at hand, and the central task at hand of every life is to make much of God. God demands that you keep your eyes on him. Now we press on here. Here's a third way to ruin your life. A third way to ruin your life. Refuse to confront deep-seated habits. Refuse to confront deep-seated habits. A lot of freshmen, they'll walk onto campus in August and they will think to themselves, this is the year I'm going to change. I'm in a new environment. I'm going to get new friends. I'm going to have new habits. I'm going to get new. I'm going to just be a new person. They do that for good or ill. Some walk onto campus thinking, I'm free now. I can do exactly what I want. I'm going to be a hedonist that I always wanted to be. Or some of them walk onto campus and they say to themselves, I'm going to, I'm going to kick all those habits, those bad things that he did in high school. I'm not going to do them anymore. This is the opportunity that I have to change. The problem with that is that you are still you and you are still there. You're the greatest problem wherever you are, always. In in verse 9 of chapter 10, God talks to the people about some long-standing rebellion that they have. He mentions Gibeah again. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned. We talked about Gibeah a lot last week, didn't we? Gibeah is the place in Judges where there's just great uh, sexual immorality and violence, terrible. He says, you have been like this from the beginning. This has characterized you from the beginning. Maybe he mentions Gibeah here too because Gibeah is a place where Saul, King Saul, built this massive palace fortress. It was a sign of military arrogance. Maybe that's why he mentions that. I'm not sure. 
You have deep-seated habits in your life that characterize defection from God, not allegiance to Him, besetting sins, patterns and habits that you have carefully cultivated. How do you respond to them? Not, not by giving up. Not, not with resignation. Not with excuses. There's a lot in the Bible about the dailiness of following Jesus. A lot about the dailiness. It's a daily... There's mercies, new mercies every morning. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Psalm 90, the psalmist prays, God, satis- God, satisfy us every day with your unfailing love. Every day is a new day to enjoin the battle again. We don't quit. We remain dissatisfied. We're not satisfied with deep-seated habits. We should talk about that more. We're not going to right now. Here's number four. Number four, a way to ruin your life. Turn your back on what you have learned. Turn your back on what you have learned. Verses 11 through 13 contain this very unusual image of the happy heifer. Uh, The text says, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain. Now, this is not how we thresh grain, but uh, they would, would, in a threshing room, they could uh, put loose... a a heifer, a a cow, and the cow would walk around the grain and the sharpness of the hooves would separate the wheat from the chaff. It was one of the ways to thresh grain. And and you're supposed to picture here this happy heifer, this young, energetic, sleek cow jumping for joy on the threshing floor. And she's happy because she can eat some of the grain and she just gets to walk around and, and what a way to live. This is a people, uh, an image of the people in their idolatry. They're playful, they're joyful, they're carefree, and God's though going to come and constrain them. He, he tells them what they're supposed to do in verse 12. He warns them about what they're supposed to do. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unplowed ground. It's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. This is a warning that he gives them that they will ignore. He uses this phrase, unplowed ground, a couple times. Jacob must break up the ground. Break up your unplowed ground. Why is this? This is a people who have God's word. The the Israelites have God's word. They have instructions from him about what they're supposed to do. And obeying it at times proves difficult. It's, It's like breaking up unplowed ground. But the fruit of it is the enjoyment of God's unfailing love. Do this work. Do this work. Seek the Lord now while you can. That's not what they did. Not what they did at all. In fact, verse 13 tells us what they have done in contrast to that. You planted weakness, wickedness, you reaped evil. You've eaten the fruit of deception. Sometimes in the, in the next few months, we have all these babies being born. And sometime in the next few months, there'll be time for another baby dedication. You've seen those. I stand up here and pray for the babies. And one of the things that I always say is I say to the congregation, Remember, these babies that are here, it is our responsibility to teach them about God and to teach them the Bible. Some of you who graduated, some of these graduates, you remember, you've been around the church long enough that you remember when they were babies and were dedicated here. Hmm. 
And, and, and you, you, have, you have been involved in this. You have, you have taught them and you have prayed for them. Now it's an opportunity for our graduates to demonstrate that they have gotten what you have taught them. God gave them this warning in verse 12. He had given them his word. He had taught them and he issued this invitation, this, this so righteous this command, this plea with them. And he knew that they would ignore it, that they would refuse to listen, that they wouldn't do what they knew they should have done. And the question is, for all of us in this room, is are you going to refuse it? What strikes me about this passage is it's 2,700 years old. Very old. All these cities are gone. All the original readers have been dead for a long time, and yet part of it actually still is in the future. Did you notice as we were reading it? Verse 8. They will say to the mountains, cover us, and the hills fall on us. Jesus quoted this verse when he was on the way to the cross. He was on the way to the cross and he was carrying his, his, his cross and, and there were women around him who were weeping for him. He, they, Jesus said, don't cry. Uh, you should be aware that there is a day that is coming where people will say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills fall on us. Actually, uh, I think he was referring to what Revelation describes in chapter 6. Look at what Revelation 6.15 says. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? They're hiding from the Lord Jesus. Which is odd. It's not usually the way that we think of him, that that we would need to hide from him. Jesus loves everyone, he doesn't, he? But think very carefully about this. As bad as the judgments in the book of Hosea are, they are primarily physical. Exile, ruined cities, impoverishment, military defeat. But Jesus warned of something much, much worse. He said, don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, you should be afraid of the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. Now, who is that? The one who can throw body and soul into hell. Apparently, it's Jesus. And when the Bible talks about uh, judgment, it almost is talking about the reverse of Romans 8.32. We talked about this a few minutes ago, didn't we? Jesus is the center point of God's mercy. You come to him by faith, receive forgiveness and life and and. Everything else after that is small potatoes for God to provide for you. He's the center point of God's mercy. It's silly to be worried about everything else if you have Jesus. But he is also the center point of God's wrath, God's judgment. You turn from him, you reject him, and you will know eternal woe. There are people in this passage, according to this passage, the people knew what condition they were in. They said it when they stood up and said, we don't fear God. We don't care. And they're the ones who are going to be ashamed, disgraced. It's a good day. It's a glad day. It's a day for us to give thanks to God for the accomplishments of all of those who graduate. It's wonderful but it is also the beginning of a new day. It's a day not for ruining. Let's pray, shall we?
Father, we come before you this morning and we do thank you for the clarity of your word and the sobriety that it cultivates in us as we read it carefully. Lord, we, are confess, we confess that we are often inclined to think, uh, think of your wrath and your justice in a very small way, to think of your holiness without fear. We are grateful to you for the Lord Jesus, who he is the propitiation for all of our sins, and that is such good news. Yet we do pray that as we continue this book and as we think about what Hosea has written here, that we would think of our rebellion against you soberly, wisely, and that sobriety would result in greater joy at the depth of what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. Save us from ruination, we pray according to your kindness. And we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.